Shabbat Shalom, everyone. I'm Monty Judah with Lion and Lamb Ministries. Welcome to our broadcast. This year we're going through the Torah portions and illustrating our theme, which is the Torah is for all people. We are now in the book of Leviticus. We're in the final two portions of Leviticus. And in fact, this Sabbath is a double portion. Our portion begins in Leviticus chapter 25, and it begins with the title Bahar, which means on the mount or at the mount. And it comes from the first uh, phrase of the verse, which says, the Lord then spoke to Moses at Mount Sinai, saying. The second portion is going to begin pretty quickly in chapter 26 at verse 3, which begins, if you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments as to carry them out, if you walk is the name of the final portion for Leviticus. So when we complete this portion, we will have completed the book of Leviticus this week. These portions are double up because we have long and short years in the Hebrew year. This particular set of years calls for the teaching of these two portions together. Uh, just as a reminder, on the last portion, we talked about the appointed times of the Lord. This portion is going to kind of extend that a little bit because we're going to see, receive the instruction on what is called the sabbatical year, which in the Hebrew is this Shemitah year, and it's also going to give the instruction about the Jubilee year, the Yovel year. Now, every seven years, the land of Israel is be given a rest, and you count seven of those Shemitahs, and you come to the year after that, the 50th year is the Jubilee year. So this chapter 25 is going to give the instruction with regard to that you will give the land its rest every seven years, and you will also give the, uh, have a, a year of remission. Um, in other words, um, there would be the resolution of all debt in every generation every 50 years. I'll elaborate here in just a little bit. It's really a very interesting system. Um, it, first of all, let's talk about the, the agricultural benefit of if you take a land and you grow crops on it, it, God said you could grow crops on it for six years, but in the seventh year you'll not cultivate it, you'll just let it naturally do what it's going to do, and you can eat of the harvest of that, but let it be natural, then you can start back the cycle of cultivation. And many agricultural scientists tell us that that system actually rejuvenates the nutrients within the earth so that it produces excellent food. However, we and most of the world since then have not been doing that, and particularly in this country we've not been doing it, to where now that the food that we produce, which is we sustain it by adding chemicals and fertilizers and other things into it to keep it going. We basically have depleted many of the nutrients in the earth. And bread that we eat today is not like bread that used to be. And it's because we have not followed this pattern uh, of how to treat the land, how to treat the earth as God specified. 
I would suggest to you that the Creator probably knows best of how to treat the planet so that it can sustain life and keep life going. And this is the planet He gave to us for mankind to live on. And at this point, uh, we can see the wisdom of God uh, giving very important instructions that would benefit the people. And all peoples would you know, benefit from these uh, instructions, but as you know, many people in the world uh, don't follow the statutes, ordinances, and commandments of the Lord. The other I want you to take note of is that this instruction specifically emphasized that this was given to Moses at Mount Sinai. Um, this isn't where Moses decided to write the other books after they left Mount Sinai and other things like that. This is specifically was given additionally to uh, the children of Israel through Moses at Mount Sinai at the same time as the giving of the Ten Commandments. So that puts a little more oomph into what the instruction is. And again, this follows uh, the instruction we had about the Moedim, about the appointed times of the Lord. Uh, let me touch on this Yovel year. Let me read to you uh, here where it begins that particular part. Verse 8, You are also to count seven Sabbaths of a year for yourself, seven times seven years, so that you have the time to give Sabbath of years, namely 49 years. Now, on the next year, is what it's referring to, you shall then sound a ram's horn on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound a horn throughout all of your land. You shall thus consecrate the fiftieth year, that's one after those final Shemitah years, and proclaim a release through the land to all of its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you, and each of you shall return to his own property, and each of you shall return to his family. The land of Israel was apportioned out in lots under the days of Joshua, and the tribes received certain portions of the land of Israel as we know today. Uh, and what would happen is within that tribal land, certain lands would then be portioned out within that tribe, to, say, individuals so that everybody had a part. And let's say that the, the man who had this particular part, let's say that he wanted the revenue that would come from the land uh, for another purpose, that he didn't want to live on the land, he didn't want to work the land. Instead, he would sell the land to someone else. Well, the way they would calculate the value of the land is how many years still remained on the land before the Jubilee year. So, for example, let's say he got the land in, say he'd been there for five years, and that he wanted to sell the land. Well, he could sell it for the value of 40, in this particular case, 44 years, the total for um, 49. And they would calculate the value of the real estate based on it. If he had been there for many years and the year of Jubilee was, was going to be coming in three years, he'd only sell the land for three years and the valuation would be for that uh, period of time. Um, and there's a lot of people who would uh, become poor 
and they would become indebted and they would have to sell the land to either pay their debts or to be able to live. But on the 50th year, that family, uh, whether it be that man or his children, would be given the land back again. And whoever was using the land had to release it uh, back to the original owners and the descendants of that tribe. Um, as far as we can tell, um, Israel didn't do a very good job of historically keeping the Shemitah years or the Yovel years. Um, the whole story of, of Nehemiah, and well, Jeremiah first, then Nehemiah, is Jeremiah complained to the house of Judah that they were going to go into captivity because they had not kept the sabbatical years. And in fact, he projected that they were going to be in captivity for 70 years because for 490 years they had not kept the sabbatical year of the land. They had not treated the land. And God had promised that he would cast them into the lands of their enemies if they disobeyed the Lord with regard to this. And so he projected they would be in Babylon for 70 years. Sure enough, they were. Daniel saw that prophecy, understood what it was about, projected when the house of Judah would be returning, and they did. Now, that's when Nehemiah showed up, and he was helping to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem for when the remnant returned. But then he observed that the children of Israel, even after all of that, and had just come back, that the, the very next sabbatical year, they were seen bringing the harvest in on the Shemitah year, that they had cultivated the land. And Nehemiah then explained uh, to those in Israel, they had brought upon them seven times the punishment. And that's what our next portion is about, is what we call the seven times punishments, because God went on to further to say, that if you won't obey these commandments and keep these, then he'll bring seven times upon you the punishment for it and so forth. Now, if you look at the state of Israel, since uh, the history that we've seen, we've seen how Israel uh, was divided into two nations, you know, the house of Israel, the house of Judah, the Assyrians took the northern part into captivity. The Romans, well, the first the Babylonians took Judah, then they returned, and then the Romans took them uh, into captivity. And we have been scattered into the nations ever since. Only in this generation have we seen the first elements of the house of Judah, the Jewish people, making their way back to the land of Israel. And in 1948, the declaration of the state of Israel, a reformation of the nation, in the land. So we all know this history about how Israel was exiled into the nations and yet they came back. Um, I want to take you uh, to uh, chapter 26 and in that second portion. I want to address some various, I want to talk about these seven time judgments and, and, and same thing, to show you a great promise that God gave us in the midst of all this pronouncement of judgment, of which we are beginning to see today. We're literally seeing what Moses prophesied would happen. We're seeing it take place. In chapter 26, 
in verse 14, this is the portion about if you don't obey, um, but if you do not obey me and do not carry out these commandments, if instead you reject my statutes, if your soul abhors my ordinances, so not to carry out my commandments and so break my covenant, I in turn will do this to you. I will appoint over you sudden terror, consumption, and fever that shall waste away the eyes and cause the soul to pine away. Also, you shall sow your seed uselessly, for your enemies shall eat it up. And I will set my face against you, so that you shall be struck down before your enemies, and those who hate you shall rule over you, and you shall flee when no one is pursuing you. And if after these things you do not obey me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. The, um, again, if you go back and look at the history and you look at the number of years that Israel has been in exile, it is very clear that this judgment that we saw of 70 years in Babylon, that it has multiplied over multiple times to the present state of the exile into the nations that we see today. And all of the descriptions that follow thereafter, you can see the evidence where Israel not only rejected the commandment, but they actually hated the commandment. They abhorred the commandment and were negative toward what the Lord had said and speaking against it and opposed to it. And it goes all the way down until we come to the part, verse 21, where it says, If then you act with hostility against me and are unwilling to obey, I will increase the plague on you seven times according to your sins. Again, more judgment to come and more multiples of judgment to come. Now, in Israel, rejecting the statutes, um, ignoring them, abhorring them, refusing to obey the Lord is one, one dynamic. But he went on to say, if you take it to another level, specifically if you act with hostility toward me, and let's stop right there and ask that question. How, how in the world would you act with hostility against God? Um, say bad things about him? I mean, that's not what really would be hostility. Um, the only event that we have in the history of Israel which falls under the definition of where Israel's act with hostility toward God is in the killing of the prophets and the killing of the Messiah. That is overt hostility against God. And that's the reason why the subject of Israel killing the prophets is so significant and the death of the Messiah is significant in that regard, because those were the thresholds that God had used and spoke through Moses when God is going to be doing these judgments upon it. The prophets, for the most part, did not emerge uh, in Israel. We had a time of judges, but the prophets didn't really emerge until in the time of when the, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom were operating. Some of the prophets went to the northern kingdom, the house of Israel, some of the prophets were down uh, with the house of Judah. Some prophets were all over the place. And, but in almost all instances, 
there's a few exceptions. The prophets were active with hostility, and actually many of them were killed. Uh, along comes the Messiah. They act with hostility toward him. The leaders of the nation, they have him killed. These are the kinds of things that we see historically where what Moses spoke here did, in fact, take place. And we have seen the resulting results of the exile to the nations. And if you'll read there in verse uh, 33, he says, You, however, I will scatter among the nations and draw out a sword after you, and your land shall become desolate and your cities become a waste. Then the land will enjoy its Sabbaths all the days of desolation. While you are in your enemies' lands, then the land will rest and enjoy its Sabbath. Isn't that interesting? You know, God thinks so strongly about giving the land its rest every seven years to the extent that he said, I'll kick you off the land if you don't do this. And it will, I will give the rest to the land while you're scattered. And we see the evidence of that. Uh, we see the evidence of that when Israel, the people of Israel left the land in the hands of their enemies, the land did become desolate. It was a wasteland. Uh, very few people inhabited any of that area. The land was given its rest. It was not agriculturally um, uh, used uh, whatsoever. But only after Israel has come back into the land now, in this generation, has suddenly the land come alive. And it's growing many fruitful things, and far more than has been going on so for almost the previous 2,000 years. So we see the evidence of that. Now, let me uh, say that it was in my experience uh, of being in church that I was told as a young man that when Israel got scattered to the nations, that that was when God said he was done with Israel. And that when the Messiah showed up, that he was basically doing away with Israel, and now God was going to do a new thing in the new covenant and was going to establish the church. And that the church was now going to become God's system of reaching the world, and be a part of it, and God had given up on Israel and didn't want anything more to do with Israel or the land of Israel and the temple service and all that. And hand in hand with that, I had many Christian teachers stand up and teach me that all of those things that were in the Old Testament, from Moses through the prophets, they, see, there was a weakness in them. They, they just weren't, the, the people weren't good enough, and the system that God had set up wasn't good enough to sustain it and to keep it going. And as a result, God had to come up with a whole new way of dealing with mankind, and that rather than law, which is what Moses had, the, the Messiah came and brought grace. So that grace replaced law. And that is a very common theological understanding within uh, Christianity across the board. Catholic, Protestant, it make any difference. They all basically hold to these basic trends. Now some have various variations on it, but I was a good Baptist and that's what we were taught and it was explained to us as dispensational theology, covenant theology, all those kinds of buzzwords to explain how God is done with Israel 
and is not going to fool with them anymore. Uh, and he's dealing with the church now, and the church is the great glorious church. However, the dispensationalists said, well, back in the, the final days during the Great Tribulation, God will then turn again back to Israel and start dealing with Israel, but they're probably all going to have to be saved by the law and things like that. That was the dominant teaching. And when I confront church people today about this teaching, first of all, many of them don't seem to have the appreciation for how strongly that's been taught to them. They just have basically accepted certain Christian teaching assumptions uh, about all this dynamic. Now, it's true that God said he was going to exile Israel into the nations. However, there are a host of prophecies that said the day is coming when God has not rejected his people and will be bringing them back. And in fact, it's in this passage in chapter 26 that I want to read to you how God speaks to the future even after they've been gone into exile. So if you would, turn with me now to verse 40 of chapter 26. This is after speaking of all these judgments, and here's what the Lord has to say, beginning at verse 40. If they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their forefathers in their unfaithfulness, which they committed against me, and also in their acting with hostility against me, I also was acting with hostility against them to bring them into the land of their enemies. Or if their uncircumcised heart becomes humbled so that they have made amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob. I will remember also my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham as well. And I will remember the land. For the land shall be abandoned by them and shall make up for its Sabbath while it is made desolate without them. They, meanwhile, shall be making amends for their iniquity because they rejected my ordinances and their soul abhorred my statutes. And this is the verse that really got me. Verse 44, yet in spite of this, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them nor will I so abhor them as to destroy them, breaking my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. But I will remember for them the covenant with their ancestors, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. So yes, Israel disobeyed. Israel got scattered into the nations. Israel has been scattered for many, many years into the nation. But God has said that if there's a turning of their hearts, a humbling on their part, a recognition that their ancestors uh, violated the commandments and, and was attempting to break the covenant that God made with them, that God would not reject them, would not destroy them, even if they were in the lands of their enemies, and would remember the covenant with them and for them. Now, in my basic church theology, we were told there was an old covenant, there's a new covenant, and the old covenant is done away with, and the new covenant has replaced it. According to what just Moses said here, that is absolutely a false teaching. 
the original covenant that God made with the fathers and down with their descendants through Moses. God says he remembers that covenant and he's the one that keeps that covenant. It doesn't make any difference what Israel did with the covenant. God's still going to keep the covenant. One of the things I was told about God's covenants is that they were conditional. That if Israel violated the covenant, that would break the covenant and it's over with. And that's not true about covenants that are made with God. The covenants made with God, God remembers all of the covenants that he's made with mankind. That's the reason why he's not a man. He's God. And oh, by the way, God has the power, the authority, and has stated his intention to remember to keep those covenants. So the covenant that God made with Adam is still in effect. The covenant that God made with Noah is still in effect. The covenant that God made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is still in effect. The covenant that God made with Moses and the children of Israel is still in effect. It didn't go away. It's never been replaced. Now, was Israel punished? Yes. God said he would do so. But also, as sure as you are looking at how Israel's been scattered in the nations, you can look with the same assurance that God is keeping the covenant with Israel thereafter. Now, okay, let's accept that premise that God has maintained the covenant, and the new covenant was simply an extension of the other covenants and was added to them, and the Messiah didn't come to reject Israel. So how do we explain um, how, what we have is this entity called the church today. Well, you're not going to like what I'm going to tell you. The church is this substitute that was made for Israel. It's the dominant substitute. I'm not denying the fact that there's a whole world full of people who think that the church is something different from Israel, but I have news for you. The church, which means the called-out assembly, the original called-out assembly, according to the Bible, the first ecclesia, the Greek word for church, was the children of Jacob that came out of Egypt. They were the first called-out assembly. And, oh, by the way, when Israel comes back to the land, they will be called out of the nations to come back to the land, and they will be the church. It's not that the church has become the new Israel. I have a, 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 a little telegram for you, a little news flash. Israel has never gone away. And a lot of my brethren in the New Covenant faith, whether you realize it or not, you're actually part of the commonwealth of Israel. You're actually part of Israel. When you decided to believe in Jesus Christ, Yeshua the Messiah, you identified and were adopted into the family of Abraham. The scripture clearly says that it's in the, that the Messiah is the seed of Abraham. When you believe in the Messiah, you become part of the family of Abraham. The family of Abraham is what produced Israel. So your definition is you, you've been adopted into the family, of the same family that we Jews are in, 
the same family that all of Israel is in. That's the reason why Paul talked about that we're the commonwealth of Israel. And it's not that we replaced Israel. We are Israel. Now, a lot of people like to think there's only Jews and Gentiles in the world. That's a stereotype. You know, the Jews are Israel. Everybody else is the nations. Well, it's true that Gentiles means nations, and it's true that Jews are part of Israel, but there's a lot more to the part of Israel than just the Jews, namely the house of Israel, which is the dominant majority of what Israel is in the world today. And it clearly says in the prophecy of Ezekiel 37 that Judah will be returning with his companions, that's others that are joining with him, that are from the nations that want to believe in the God of Israel, and that the house of Ephraim, not Jews, will be returning with their companions as well, and we're going to have another exodus at the end of the age, like unto the exodus that came out of Egypt, where the descendants of Jacob came out, and it was a mixed multitude, the scripture says, of which there were slaves from many nations. They came out and they became one assembly and they became numbered and named as the 12 tribes of Israel. There still is 12 tribes of Israel. It hasn't gone away. We have difficulty on our identity as to who we are, but if you believe in the Messiah, the, the king of Israel, you're part of Israel according to this biblical record. And here we are out intermingled in the nations. We look like the nations. We smell like the nations. Uh, and, and there's Jewish distinctiveness in the nations. But the Jews are only a subset of what Israel is. To replace Israel, to carry out this covenant theology, to, to make a New Testament that replaced the Old Testament, all of that business, they had to make Israel go away, and they had to put in a substitute. So churchmen came up with the idea, we'll call it the church. And most of Christianity today has followed that theological bent. And that's been, if you will, the age of the Gentiles. The Gentiles have taken on a Gentile characterization of the faith as descendants of Abraham. And as a result, we have our present dynamic in the world today. But now Messianic Jews, Messianic believers, are unifying under the banner of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, turning back to the instruction of Moses, back to this instruction, and are suddenly realizing, wait a minute, we're all part of the same family. And, it's, and, and this did not set up the establishment of the church. This has always been the establishment of Israel. And what would happen to Israel? Here we see. We see the house of Judah has left the nations, has returned back to the land. That's what it said was supposed to happen. But it also says that the house of Israel one day is going to be coming and joining with the house of Judah. They'll become one in the hand of the Lord. And we believe, as the prophecy says, that will take place because the Messiah will be bringing them back. Now, the Messiah has come and done the work of redemption. He offered himself up as a sacrifice for our sins and grants us the gift of salvation. But the next great work of the Messiah, 
is the work of restoration. He will restore all things, and that means he will restore Israel. I know this is going to be tough to hear, but let me go ahead and just lay it on you. Um, unlike today, in the Messianic Kingdom, I don't believe that you're going to be able to go down to the corner and visit First Baptist of the Kingdom or the local Presbyterian Church, and there won't be any Catholic cathedrals in the Kingdom. In the Kingdom, where the Messiah dwells with us in the land, there will be Jerusalem, there will be a temple, and we will all go to that place to worship the Lord. And there will be no need for any so-called church in that time. And there certainly is no reference to the church beyond that. So this church thing that we've got, this whole concept that we have in the world prevalent today, is actually a fabrication as a substitute for what the Bible calls Israel. Now, you're probably irritated with me, and you probably don't want to hear this. But that is the reality of what this scripture teaches. It flat out says, right here, that God would never reject nor destroy his people, even though they're scattered in the nations. And Israel has kept his promise. Did you know the nation of Israel is the only nation in the history of the world where they have been overrun by their enemies, scattered and taken captive away from their native land, and then now have come back at a later time, come back to their native land and reestablish their nation again. Only Israel in the history of the world has done such a thing. No other nation has done that. That's exactly what Moses said would be happening. And that's what we see has taken place in our days. Now, when it comes to the subject of the, the, the Taurus for all people, I want to speak specifically to the people that are standing on the earth today with me. These words are being fulfilled within our hearing. It's within our days that these things are happening. God is going to be turning his face toward Israel and to the people who believe in the God of Israel and, and the Messiah King of Israel with those who have humbled their hearts, those who have ceased from acting with hostility toward God, who no longer agree with the concept of killing God's prophets or his Messiah, and who want to learn the statutes and ordinances and the laws of God. Thus, that's the reason why you're part of this Torah study. We're here teaching you what are the statutes, what are the commandments, so that you can learn <clears throat> how to walk with God. If you go back to chapter 26, the beginning of our second portion, verse 3, if you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments so as to carry them out. The common expression that we use, well, I'm walking with the Lord. What that means, according to the Bible, is if you're walking with the Lord, then you are paying attention to his statutes and his ordinances, and you are keeping his commandments. It's not based on faith. Walking is a very overt, direct thing you do. It's not a feeling. It's something that happens. And so when you walk with God, 
Each day you keep his commandments. In the course of us in a year, we have his statutes concerning his appointed times, keeping the Sabbath each week, keeping Passover, unleavened bread, um, leading to Shavuot, over to trumpets, to atonement, to tabernacles. We keep those Moedim throughout the year. Every seven years, we keep the Shemitah year. Every 50 years, we keep the Yovel year. Are we doing this all at this present time? No. We're scattered in the nation still. We're still subject to many things that we don't have control over. Well, the day's coming when we're going to get to go back to the land. The Messiah is going to bring us back. What are we going to do there? These commandments. We're going to keep these commandments then. And we're going to walk directly with the Lord, and he's going to walk with us. So what are we doing here in the nations where we can't keep all of this stuff? Well, we're demonstrating to the Lord. We've humbled ourselves. We've turned away from the nations. We don't want anything more to do with Egypt. We want to follow what the Lord has said. So we're demonstrating that our heart, our hearts are yielded to the Lord so that we will, so the Lord will know we'll obey him when he brings us back. Part of the reason why we were scattered in the nations is although we would say everything perfectly with our mouths and our lips, our hearts were far from him. Now, the prophet has said that even though we have stammering lips and can't say it quite correctly and can't quite do it correctly, our hearts are following the Lord. And the Lord says, I will bring you back after you turn your hearts back over to me. Every time we attempt to keep the commandments of the Lord in this day, every time we keep his appointed times, Every time we pay attention to the Shemitah year, the Yovel year, it's a subject we want to know about. Every time we turn back to that, we're demonstrating to God that we have the heart to obey the Lord and to keep his statutes and his ordinances. And we want to walk out our faith uh, with him. And that is the reason that um, we're going to be brought back by the Lord at the end of the ages. Many, many years ago, when I was a good Baptist, there came a day when I read Leviticus 26. And it suddenly struck me that Moses knew all along that we weren't going to obey the Lord, and he knew all along that we'd eventually get scattered into the nations. But God made a promise, even though that happened, that he would not reject us, nor abhor us, nor destroy us. And I suddenly realized what my previous teachers had taught me was false. And I wanted to know the truth. And to tell you the truth, I like the idea of my God not rejecting me, not abhorring me, not destroying me, because my ancestors sinned. I like the fact that he continues to remain faithful to my fathers and the promise to them so that I get to be one of Abraham's descendants and I get the inheritance that was promised to Abraham and I get to be part of the kingdom too. And not in a distorted, weird way, but according to the original promises. 
you know, that God made. And for that, I am very, very thankful. You know, if you're a, a good Christian and you're still holding to the idea that God did reject Israel and is done with Israel and now he's working with the church, you do realize that the church historically has done far more grievous things than Israel did historically. Far more grievous. And so if God is the type of God who he gets his limit, he then cuts you off and rejects you and abhors you and destroys you, well, the church is in a lot of trouble because it's the same God that you believe rejected Israel. It's the same God that's ruling concerning you. And uh, you are without mercy, according to your definition of the Lord. But thank goodness, that is not who God is. God is a God full of mercy. He remembers and he keeps covenant. He's full of grace. And we get to be adopted into his family, despite what our ancestors may have done. And despite our sins, he still has a way to forgive us, restore us, and bring us back to be part of his kingdom. Chapter 27 uh, is this final thing, and it's a whole bunch of instructions on what are called valuations. It's absolutely fascinating that God has set up a system so that we understand what is the baseline valuation of a person's life. What's the baseline valuation for a child or a woman or all of the different things that take place in the courses of our lives. And he has then specified, this will be the baseline of valuations uh, for all of Israel, for all of its different negotiations. And these are basic economic definitions. And by the way, every nation needs to have that you know, where we have a, a basic understanding of what we declare as value and what the value is worth. And here's the chapter that lays out baseline economic valuations for all of Israel for them to go into the land. As we look back on the book of Leviticus, the book of Leviticus is basically its major theme is about holiness, it's about the instructions to the priest to make sure things are presented in a holy way before God. We ourselves are called upon to be holy for he is because he is holy, to be his people, to not profane ourselves before God, to remain clean, don't be part of the unclean, to be pure uh, before the Lord, to live so that we can live within those bounds. To, to come before the Lord at the proper times, uh, to recognize the Lord, that he's the creator, to recognize that he's the redeemer and the restorer, to understand all of these things so that we might live before the Lord properly. Whenever people come up with new definitions for what is holy and profane, or new definitions for clean or unclean, or new definitions for all of the time things and so forth, it's not going to be according to the way God set up, and the blessings that God had intended will not be emerging. Instead, we're going to receive curses and because we're disobeying uh, the commandments of the Lord. Basic common sense says that we should obey the Lord. 
but we should go his way, his, his system. So if you're going to walk with the Lord, you're going to do it according to his definition for life, not your own. And by the way, if you get a whole group of religious men together and they all agree on something differently, it's not going to work. We have to go back to what is the Lord's instructions for all of these things. So we conclude the book of Leviticus at this point, and on next Shabbat, we will begin the book of Numbers, which is Bar, which means in the wilderness. And you're going to find that that book as well has a lot of information that applies to us today uh, as we're going through the journey of life before we get to the promised land. Until then, Shabbat Shalom to all of you. Thank you for joining us. This broadcast has been made possible by the Lord and by the generous donations of brethren like you. If you would like to give a donation to help keep this broadcast on the air, please visit llgive.com. Thank you and shalom.